experts and uh, joining me today, Tom Moody and uh, Freddie Wild, as usual, as we draw closer and closer, gentlemen and listeners, to the advent of live international cricket once again. We're getting very excited. And today is a focus on test match cricket um, in the lead up, the prelude to the West Indies England series that will be starting in maybe just over a week's time. Uh, Tom, let me ask you how things are going. Yeah, all very good. Thanks, Bish. Obviously, we're slowly moving uh, towards uh, recovering after this devastating virus that's hitting us all. Uh, but uh, to be fair, we've been reasonably sheltered to date uh, here in Perth, Western Australia. But still, it has had a major impact on many people's lives, uh, you know, whether that be health-wise or whether that be through, you know, just their day-to-day business. And Freddie, uh, we, we're going to be discussing and, and we're going to ask you to kick things off after you say your little intros and stuff about things in the UK and how they're going, because we're going to be debating two of the best teams, two of the best teams during two periods of dominance by those respective teams, the West Indies and Australia, from uh, the early 80s onwards. So that's going to be the gist of our discussion today, folks. We're not going to go back to uh, the 40s, 50s, 60s. Take it away, Freddie. Yeah, so um, thanks for the introduction. And yeah, I think things here uh, are looking up too. And as you said, a week away from live cricket when we'll see England and West Indies take the field in Southampton. Um, and you're right, today we're going to be looking back and we're going to be debating who is the greatest test team of all time. Um, and as you said, we're going to be looking at two teams, the West Indies team from the, the 1980s um, and the Australian team from, well, late 1999 through to 2007. And they're two teams who, I think, when this debate occurs, which it often does amongst people, people and cricket fans around the world, they're the two teams that stand out. Um, the other team that's probably worth mentioning is either side of the Second World War. Uh, Australia had a very dominant side as well. Um, that they, they were superbly successful across a prolonged period of time, obviously broken up by the Second World War. But we're not going to go back that far. We're looking at two of the greatest teams, I suppose, of the modern era. Uh, and we're looking at the West Indies between, uh, we've, we've earmarked some dates here, February 1981 and December 1989. And for Australia, October 1999 to November 2007. Um, and in that period of time, uh, both sides were hugely successful. West Indies played 69 test matches uh, and losing just seven uh, with a win-loss ratio of 5.71. They didn't lose a single series in that time. And Australia, between 99 and 2007, played 93 test matches and they lost 10 of them with an even better win-loss ratio of 7.20 wins per loss. And they lost two series of their 30, two very famous series, which we might touch on later, obviously against India away in 2001 and then in 2005 against England in that famous Ashes series. So they're the two sides who statistically across a long period of time have managed to sustain um, serious dominance at home and away. Um, One of those sides obviously wasn't in my lifetime, but I've got some numbers to to talk about today. And you guys um, obviously have have watched both sides very closely um, and we'll be debating which one is the greatest. Well, I sort of came in on the back end, and I know that there'll be a lot of listeners who will be going back and throwing back to maybe a West Indies team of the 60s coming into the 70s that had um, great periods of success as well. But we're going to specifically stick to 
those timelines for points of discussion. Um, I came into that West Indies team on the back end from 1988 to 1989, and our ethos was slightly different to Australia's dominant period for a number of reasons, but one key point was it was an almost all-pace-based attack. Um, there were the odd spinners thrown in there from time to time from 1981 going forward. You can think Roger Harper, uh, Carl Hooper, um, just to name a couple. But predominantly, it was a pace-based attack, whereas Australia, as Tom will point out, had a fairly, I suppose, more balanced attack, more versatile attack with great spin in it. Um, but it's just that everywhere that West Indies team went, whether they went to the subcontinent or whether they played in the Caribbean or Australia or England, it was pace through and through. And I would have a very difficult time accepting for points of debate whether there was ever a better bowling, better, more potent bowling attack. There may have been better balance, but I still think that bowling attack struck the fear of God technically, physically, and character-wise into every team that they played. Yeah, well, the, the bowlers you're referring to, Bish, that probably played the bulk of that time for the West Indies were the likes of Michael Holding, Joel Garner, Malcolm Marshall, and Curtly Ambrose. Would that be right, Freddie? They were probably the ones that occupied most of those games and you can understand you can understand why you're you know you sort of lean that way because you've got a variety you've got variety in that attack even though there's not a spinner you've got you've got Marshall who wasn't six foot what Marshall was about five foot ten five foot eleven uh, skiddy he had many gears as a fast bowler he could swing the ball. He could bowl flat-out pace. He bowled very clever cutters as well if conditions um, were there for that. Uh, then they had the likes of Joel Garner that nearly stood seven foot tall, that had a deadly Yorker, a, a very, very challenging bouncer because it didn't have to be that short. Um, and then you had a, a baby version of him growing up following his shadow in Kirtley Ambrose, who developed into one of the game's greatest fast bowlers. And then you had the person they nicknamed Whispering Death, Michael Holding, who, you know, looked like he should have been in the Olympics running the 400 or the 800, but he ran in off the sight screen and bowled Thunderbolts. But yeah, uh, just, to, just to add a couple of names in there as well, Courtney Walsh played 34 test matches during the era in question. He was quite a handy bowler. Um, Patrick Patterson as well. And then at the, uh, the start of the era, uh, Andy Roberts was still playing too. So, I mean, yeah, these are who's who in some of test cricket's very, very greatest bowlers. So, so the, one, the one thing when we're just looking at the bowling, I think there's, there's no doubt that... That, that that sort of group of fast bowlers in that West Indian era, the, the, the depth and quality of it was extraordinary. Unbelievable. And I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again in the history of the game where you have as many high-quality fast bowlers in one, in one era, um, where the Australian bowling attack was very different. Yes, they had pace because they had... 
you know, Gillespie, who bowled quickly, had Brett Lee, who was probably the quickest of them all in that Australian group. He had Glenn McGrath, who, you know, his record speaks for itself. But where, where the Australians were different is that they had arguably the greatest wrist spin of the game's ever seen in Shane Warne, dominating during that period. And they had another leg spinner in Stuart McGill, who's, who's sort of not recognised, I feel, as much as he sh- sh- should should be recognised. He played 30 test matches during that period. But because he lived in the, you know, the long shadow of Shane Warne, he didn't play anywhere near as much as he should have and developed the reputation as a test cricketer as much as he could have because... He was a prodigious spinner of the ball, very different leg spinner to Shane Warne, but prodigious spinner of the ball uh, and a genuine wicket taker. So the Australian attack was very different. It was more diverse in the traditional sense, as in it it had the, your, your great slow bowlers and it also had a, a good uh, fast bowling battery. But probably where Australia can't match the West Indies is the depth of fast bowling. They had a few that, that that played in that generation from time to time, but when you compare them with who was sitting on the sidelines for the West Indies, there's no comparison. Yeah, I've just got some numbers to, to back that up. Um, in the two eras in question, uh, 95% of the wickets taken by the West Indies were taken by their quick bowlers, um, whereas Australia, 67%, as you said, Warren and McGill playing a prominent role. Um, but the quality of the West Indies pace attack, um, as we've touched on, it is unmatched really. So their quicks average 23 with the ball, 23 runs per wicket. Whereas their spinners, um, although they didn't play particularly frequently, the, the, the few that Bish mentioned, averaged 39. Um, Australia, on the other hand, their spinners averaged, their, their quicks, sorry, averaged 28, and so did Warren and McGill together. So essentially, Moves, it, it, uh, it, those numbers agree with what you were saying there about Australia having a slightly more balanced attack. Um, their, their quicks and their spinners both averaged 28. They took, uh, you know, the spinners took a larger chunk of their wickets, whereas the West Indies far more pace dominated and those pace bowlers were um, slightly better than Australia's. And I think uh, that there is no denying it. No one will ever probably compile such a battery of quick bowlers ever again. And we should also mention um, that our, our very own Ian Bishop also played a handful of test matches in that era too. Baby Bishop. Not, not needed <laughs> to be mentioned. And, and just a little bit of a backdrop to that era from a bowling perspective, because I have a feeling that I'm not going to get the chance to, to be bullish or to gloat on any other aspect of this debate between the two teams. There were spinners, Tom, and you made a, a very fascinating point in our preamble coming into this podcast about someone like Lance Gibbs, who at one point was the leading wicket-taker in the history of Test Match cricket um, during his time. I, I thought, you know, just watching domestic cricket initially as a kid coming through the early 80s and then playing regional cricket and international cricket in the second half of the 80s, there were a number of spinners, had they been given a chance, I thought would have made a good fist maybe if they were in another country. Uh, both wrist spinners and off spinners. Um, But Clive Lloyd's philosophy after being dropped 5-1 by Australia in the late 70s, Lily and Thompson, et cetera, et cetera, he decided his modus operandi was going to be on all-out pace, a four-pronged pace attack, which changed the philosophy, Freddie, to your point a little bit earlier of how bowling teams groom themselves thereafter. Yes, there was always going to be the spin, but I think people started thinking, hey, 
if we can have two or three out-and-out quick bowlers, then we're in the money here if we can add a really good spinner. So I don't know if captains in the Caribbean were able to captain and lead spinners in the way that cause them to grow. So I think that's one catalyst that must be added to that or one, one point of thinking. But they were very good spinners. I just think the focus from Lloyd's determination after the late 70s was pace, and we did not allow and be patient enough with spinners coming through. Uh, but from a batting perspective, great batsmen. Um, there were some great batsmen in that West Indies team, but I don't know that they can compete in terms of the depth that Australia had beyond their starting points, and I'll let you guys go through that. Sure. Well, I mean, st statistically, just to, to go through some of the sort of standout batsmen from both teams during the year, and then I'll, I'll hand over to, to Moods for a little bit more um, considered analysis, having, having had uh, more first-hand experience of these guys. But um, just ordered by runs in the era in question here uh, for the West Indies, you've got Greenwich, Haynes, Richards, Richardson, Dujon, Gomes, Lloyd, Logie. Um, as the top run scorers, but uh, the, the top four there with more than 4,000 runs. Uh, and then you go across to the Australians and you've got, uh, what have we got here? We've got around 14 players with more than 1,000 runs, which sort of already speaks to the fact that you've got greater depth there. Um, ordered by runs again, we've got Ponting, Hayden, Langer, Gilchrist, who I think is someone we should talk about, um, particularly in terms of the depth he offered Australia. Um, Damian Martin, Steve War, Mark War, Mike Hussey, Michael Clark, Darren Lehman, Michael Slater, Simon Katic. Um, you know, it's often spoken about with that Australian team, the number of very, very good batsmen who didn't and couldn't get in the side. I think something that stands out as a difference between the two teams here, the West Indies and the Australian team, is that batting depth. The number of players outside the Australian team who had a very strong claim to being in it, who couldn't get in it simply because the blokes that were occupying spots one to seven were all-time great players. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I think the Australian batting uh, debate is it mirrors the the West Indies bowling. In the, the the West Indies had the huge amount of depth in fast bowling, where Australia were absolutely spoilt for choice with high class uh, batsmen. Um, and as we all know, all great teams have stability as well. And I think where Australia. Uh, one of the reasons they were dominant during their time was they had stability in that top order. You know, Hayden and Langer played together at the top of the order for, for many, many years. Ponting was also part of that for many, many years. So there was a lot of consistency. So they knew each other's game. They knew each knew how each other would tick and they would help each other through, you know, challenging times. And that's that's the beauty of that 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 stability. Um, for mine, the, the Australian team, I think, is unmatched when it comes to their top top seven. And I say seven because Gilchrist was a freak. Uh, he was the first to, to, to really dominate as a batsman, as a wicketkeeper batsman, where he would, you know, by himself win matches at seven with the bat, let alone the work he'd do behind the stumps to the likes of McGrath and Warren and the diversity of the challenge he had as a wicketkeeper. So, you know, he was a freak as a batsman for many, many test matches. He averaged in the mid to high 50s. His average only came down to 49, just a tick under 50, uh, really on the back of his last few test matches. 
So he, he was a very, very dominant player. And, and the interesting thing is, is out of all those Australians, the one that really stands out for me is the obvious name in Ponting. And during that time that we're talking about, he averaged 65 as a test batsman. <laughs> you know, and that's batting at three. And that's that's a phenomenal number, isn't it? He is, with, with an average like that, he is shaping the game. You know, he's walking out and dictating and shaping the game. On the other side, Viv Richards at three. And I, I'm not playing Viv Richards down. Don't get me wrong here. But he averaged 46. So I'm just mentioning that because it just shows you how freakish Ponting was during that during that period. Yeah, Ponting was, was an exceptional player. And, and our listeners will be probably shouting and saying, well, there are intangibles. And there are intangibles. Uh, during that West Indies period, for a large portion of that time, and Freddie alluded to the rules and, and moods, I think you talked about it a little bit earlier as well, before we clicked on the pod, it was not a game played with helmets. So Mm. the character, the technique of a batsman then would have been different. Um, The rules limiting the short ball, just one aspect would have come in towards the 90s and maybe well into the 90s or the early 90s. So the way batsmen play, and it's still a point of debate, do batsmen play differently now with helmets, would they have played any differently back then? Is batting better off for helmets or or not? That is a point that people are still debating out there. Yeah, it certainly is. The other significant difference too um, is the the change in the rule over the bouncer. So this West Indian team in in this period where they dominated, it was. You know, it was you know free for all with bouncers for a for a good period of their dominance, um, and they became, a, you know, a as you touched on, it was not only a technical examination, it was a character examination where, you know, over after over after over, there was no escaping. You you were totally intimidated with genuine pace bowling that would really occupy between hip to heart, you know, that sort of range where you're constantly being challenged. Um, you know, forget the drive. You keep the drive in the dressing room because you're not going to be getting too many drives. Um, <clears throat> and if you, couldn't, if you couldn't cut or pull or if you felt uneasy against the short ball, well, you know, forget it. You weren't going to survive. The, the, just to answer your question around the helmet situation, I think I think the helmet has definitely hindered uh, the technique for batsmen around playing the short ball uh, because it's given them a sense of comfort, it's given them a sense of safety, and therefore they they're not watching the ball as long as they did in the previous generation where helmets weren't available. Because you had to watch the ball, because otherwise you're exposing the side of your head or the back of your head to a to, to a delivery. So you'd just do your best to get out of the way of the delivery, and the only way you could do that was by watching the ball to know exactly where it was going. Um, where I think uh, certainly batsmen in this generation and 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 probably the generation just prior it, it have 
I suppose, lost that art of really watching the ball right to the end. They'll turn their head on the ball and uh, and wear it in the in the helmet more than what you'd see previously. Just one point on on that uh, the bounce of comment of yours moods. Obviously, that gave huge benefit to the West Indies attack because they were so ferocious and and, and you know that they were probably better equipped or certainly better equipped than any other side to to exploit that rule but I guess on the flip side that would have also made batting uh, harder for some of the West Indian players too who would have been facing uh, a bouncer barrage it wasn't just the West Indies who would have been delivering it so um, you know we talk about there comparing the batting averages of the West Indian team um, you know we were talking about Ponting averaging 65 and Richards down at 45 and again not doing down Richards or, 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 or um, you know, a comparison is difficult, but it's difficult because across eras, the game changes and, and um, Richards would have had to face far more bounces per over than, than mm. Ponting would have. Mm. Um, and, and, and as a result, I think, you know, the, the arguments that we can make to sort of help the West Indies also hinder them and, and vice versa. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, just, just another, another point is that back when the West Indies were playing, you know, Viv Richards would, would, would be playing the short ball like Richie Richardson playing the short ball, like Desmond Haynes and Gordon Green. So they'd be taking it on. But the boundary was the fence. There wasn't mm. a boundary rope that came in 10 metres. So they were playing on the whole ground. So at times they may absolutely flush a pull shot or a hook shot and be caught on the fence. And it's already travelled 80 metres, where today, and certainly the era that we're talking about with the Australians, you know, the, the likes of the MCG and the SCG and other grounds around the world, the, the, you know, there's a rope. And the, so the, the, the grounds bigger, aren't as big. Bigger edges that might have helped hooking, <laughs> carrying it over the ropes too. I mean, yeah. as, as a broad question to you guys, when, was batting harder? In Do you think batting was harder in the West Indies era than it was in the Australian era? I think it was, and, and the comparisons are odious. I know that our listeners need to be reminded of this. There are too many intangibles to say definitively one way or the other. But you think back then, pitches would have been, I would have thought, spicier. Um, Perth would have been in its heyday moods, and, and you would know that from your experience. You played in Western Australia uh, throughout your career. Um, there were so many other grounds around the world, Sabina Park. Uh, in Jamaica and the Caribbean would have allowed this uh, pitches maybe in England would have been more conducive to to maybe even more swing and seam at times. So there were challenges. You didn't have the protection, the fallback of the helmets and some of the protection that you have now. So there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. There are some batsmen in this last two decades who average over 40, that would not have had the character to score as frequently back in the day. They just would not. There were some who would have adapted. Now, if you transfer that to, let's say, 99 to 2007, some of the players who played back then would have had to contend with the rise in technology, the analysis now that we have so much more of, the exploitation of weaknesses before the very world with the globalization of technology, all of those things would have provided an additional challenge to batsmen from 81 to 89. The prevalence of technology, of coaching staff now, Modi, Tom, you've fallen into that bracket. So I don't know that anyone can definitively say 
what the exact advantage would have been to each era and who would have come out on top. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think um, it, it is far far too difficult to, to know the answer, but I suppose all we can do is look at them and compare them with the teams and the players of their time. Mm. And we look at that West Indies team. We're old enough, Bish, and a lot of our listeners will also be old enough to remember with incredible fondness and in awe of they were nearly like the globetrotters of cricket, mm. you know, the, the West Indies team of that era. It, it, mm. They were showstoppers. Mm. And that's what I remember about them. I played at the very beginning of my career, the same time that Bish started, and I had a, a little taste of what it was like. And it was, it was, it was uphill. Everything was uphill. It was so, so hard on many, many levels. And I'm not saying that the game today isn't as hard uh, from a batting perspective, but all I remember is is the incredible uh, challenge of that battery of pace bowling and how that how that challenged uh, how that challenged you. Now, I'm not saying on the other side that coming across an Australian side in in, in their era when you've got the genius of Warren, and and the support around him and the world class sort of you know pace bowling of of McGrath Lee and Gillespie it's any easier but you know it's it's just so different. Yeah, and just just to put a final point on that that bowling, I think in the same way that we admire the precision of McGrath, the hostility of of Brett Lee. I don't want our listeners who like Freddie are too young to have seen the West Indies team of that generation of the 80s. Yes, the short balls, as Tom would be able to allude to, having faced us a little bit at the beginning of his career, the short balls were a factor. But there were some really great bowlers coming through that time who were skillful. You talked to Michael Holding about what Andy Roberts taught him, and Andy played a little bit in that era about swing, about seam, about control, about tactics. Um, Colin Croft was another name that deserves to come through. He was hostility personified. Uh, Joel Garner was, wasn't as quick, but he could be hostile on his day. But his control, along with Ambrose, etc., uh, someone like a Winston Benjamin, who was slippery, a, a name that won't come into the discussion much from others. So there was great skill in addition to that. And there were others who couldn't get in, Freddie. You wouldn't know this. But there were other fast bowlers in the Caribbean at the time who they could not see the light of day. Sylvester Clark played a few test matches, but you talk to anyone in England old enough to remember the fear that he caused and the trepidation that, that he caused Hartley Elaine and a number of other bowlers who couldn't play. So for those reasons at the time, it was brilliant to, to watch as a kid coming through myself. Um, to understand what was there. Uh, uh, just, I mean, one of the points that Moose just made is, is what we can do is look at how those teams, so the West Indies team of the 80s and Australia of the early 2000s, how they fared compared to their contemporaries in that era. Um, and from a batting perspective, the West Indies, just going here on raw batting average, the West Indies batting average was the best in the world. They averaged 34.2 mm-hmm. with the bat. 
but that was only fractionally better than Pakistan in that same period. So from a batting perspective, they were the best, but not miles clear. Um, from a bowling perspective, um, in that period, they were miles clear. So they averaged 25 with the ball. The next best again was Pakistan, who I think were probably the, 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 the second strongest team in that era with 30. So they were quite a way clear with the ball. Now, if we do the same thing for the Australian era with the bat, the Aussies averaged 40. Um, and they were four, four runs clear of the second best team in that period, which was South Africa with the bat. So they were slightly more dominant with the bat. And again, they were the most dominant bowling team. But again, the margin was smaller. So this goes back, I think, what to, to what Moods touched on earlier about how the West Indies had extraordinary pace bowling debt or bowling depth and were, um, I think, an unrivaled bowling side. Um, Australia were an unrivaled batting side. And I think they're the... the, 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 the um, the secondary suit for each team for the West Indies, it was the batting um, and for Australia, it was the bowling. I guess it's a question of what was better. Was Australia's bowling better than, Austra than West Indies batting in that period? Statistically, um, it, it seems to suggest Australia, Australia's bowling was probably slightly better and that they were slightly further clear of the next best team in that period. Whereas West Indies, mm -hmm. as I said, were basically level pegging with Pakistan with the bat. The, the other thing that we need to make mention is during that period in the 80s, in the early 80s, where West Indies were, you know, bossing the cricketing world and, on, and not sort of making this point because taking anything away from them. But it was during the time where there was a few rebel tours to South Africa uh, and the West Indies took part in uh, that as well in 82, 83 and then 83, 84. So that's where those bowlers, in particular Bish, also spent some time to show off their their skills uh, on those rebel tours to South Africa. England toured, uh, had a rebel tour in 81, 82 uh, to South Africa as well. And Australia had one in 85, 86 and 86, 87. So a, a lot of players... Uh, had made a difficult decision during that time where they either were part of the Australian or their national side uh, and decided to go for the, the go to the rebel tour or they had players that just looked at the the list of batsmen or bowlers in front of them and thought well I'm really not going to have an opportunity here I have no other choice but to take the opportunity to go to South Africa yeah, and that, that's an interesting context you bring, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that. Look, we're not going to get into the whys and wherefores of that. That's another debate for another time. But there was there's one particular academic in the Caribbean who makes a rather interesting point in that the players, the West Indian players, lost because many of them never came back or were allowed back as players in West Indies cricket, either regionally or internationally. One or two of them did had a, a debilitating effect on West Indies cricket going forward because West Indies lost a number of players through that who would have been able to bridge the gap between that great generation and the generation to come. And I think that's a rather interesting perspective. When you think of Ezra Mosley, who played international cricket into his 30s, um, one of the, the, the most athletic, rhythmical bowling actions that you could ever come across, but he only played a handful of test matches because he came back and was allowed back. Uh, Franklin Stevenson, another one who went to South Africa, unfortunately, but who dominated county cricket in the UK 
for a number of seasons as an all-around cricketer. So those are just little glimpses of the talents that were below the international level that we never saw for any extended period of time. Um, the fitness, I think, is another thing that we need to talk about. The West Indies changed the game, Freddie, in that way. They were ahead of their time. Dennis Wade, the great Australian trainer. Tom, you would know Dennis. Mm. For many years during that, that period of the 80s, um, got the team ahead of the curve and teams have subsequently built upon that fitness level. The feeling of the West Indies team, the catching, I remember going to watch sessions of international cricket at the Queen's Park Oval in Trinidad and getting there at seven o'clock so we could see the West Indies practice their fielding practice. Their feeling with Clive Lloyd nicking to Greenwich and Haynes and whoever and the person throwing the ball was throwing it at full throttle. So the athleticism of a West Indies team fielding-wise there was, I think, something that we cannot understate. How important, Fish, that's a fascinating point around fitness. How important was that fitness for a team who, as we've mentioned, didn't have a spinner to rely on to sort of tie up an end in the same way? Um, I think one of the, the primary roles of a spinner in test cricket is to sort of, you know, the game is, it's a long game and they can bowl longer spells and as a result, you know, rest those quicks. And if you've got a four-pronged attack, that fitness must have been particularly important um, to, 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 you know, to, for, for those guys to be able to play regularly um, and, 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 you know, those high, that, that high pace and aggression not drop off, essentially. It's an excellent question, actually. And, and again, it goes back to eras and it's why I'm loath to transfer the thought process of my era eras before and put it on the modern player as a burden. But Andy Roberts said it the other day, I think he was in, in an interview with Michael Holding, and he said, now Andy's before our time, um, he said that when they train, they train to bowl 25 overs minimum per day. That's what they train for, 25 overs minimum. That was, if they didn't bowl 25 overs, they probably didn't feel as though they put in the workload for the day of that test match. So if you've got four quicks bowling, capable of bowling that type of workload a day, and you only end up bowling, what, 75 overs? Some people would be saying I'm being kind. You didn't think about a batting team lasting that time. So we train for those specific things. Now, when you hear the modern player, by virtue of the medical advice, talk about 17, 18, 19 overs is, is probably his work, top end of his workload per day. You understand why players of that generation think it's anathema to what they were thinking about. So that's why I said that West Indies group, led by Clive Lloyd from the late 70s throughout the 80s, were ahead of their time in many respects and why why comparisons are so difficult. Yeah, and I think the other thing uh, around fast bowling and the preparation for fast bowlers in that generation compared to the generation of the Australian team that we're talking about or even today is it was bowling specific. It was cricket specific. It wasn't in the weights room. It wasn't, um, it, it wasn't anything but bowling those volume of overs that you're referring to, whether that be in the nets or, in, or out in the, in the centre wicket situation, and you touched on the fielding, it was the, it was the fitness was captured in those environments, in cricketing-specific environments. So that also, I think, 
is a very interesting debate from a sports science perspective is that, well, is the modern era working? Are, are, we, are we any fitter to play the game? Are we more resilient, physically resilient to remain fit through, you know, the, the rigours of our game compared to, you know, what was done, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago where it was just very simple um, game preparation and it was all cricket specific? Just just on that point, Freddie and, and Tom, we often talk now, and we've done a few pods earlier, about the effect of the swinging ball uh, in recent years. Uh, I think the last two, three years, Freddie, you had some great numbers about the renaissance of fast bowling and how the batting numbers have dropped off simply because of that. I think that's worth revisiting because when we talk now, about pitches in England back in the early 80s, the mid 80s, pitches in Australia and Perth and et cetera, et cetera, and how batsmen had to cope a lot of that without helmets, then with helmets, how they had to cope technically with that swinging, seeming, moving ball, whether it's a spinning ball as well in the subcontinent. And the drawbacks now, as soon as the ball, I watch a lot of batsmen, many of whom are very good in this era, but many of whom, as soon as the ball comes off the straight, nick it off. And, and that goes to something Tom always talks about, white ball cricket and its impact on batting techniques in this modern era. Well, and it's also interesting that both these teams, you know, the Australian team, um, we're talking up to 2007, um, and obviously the West Indies team in the 80s. Neither side had quite the opportunity to be influenced by the right. Obviously, T20 cricket has come around in 2003. You wonder whether sort of um, whether we'll see sides of such dominance again, given that the the difficulty in being an elite level Test player whilst also trying to be an elite level white ball player. Um, and, and as the game, as the formats continue to diverge into the future, um, particularly the Australian side, um, because they were so dominant with the bat, will we ever see a team? Um, dominate to such a level in, in Red Bull cricket again because it's 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 very rare that we're going to see a top seven in test matches where at least half of them are not also white ball players. So, I mean, this is sort of going off on, on a bit of a tangent, but it's an interesting point to consider, particularly around that Australian team. Not only are they probably the greatest batting side that test cricket has ever seen, but maybe they're the last great batting side in that, you know, it may, maybe it will be difficult for anyone to match those numbers again for, for many, many reasons, but primarily because of white ball. Well, the mo- most important point in that is that the likes of your Hayden, Langer, Ponting, Martin, S-War, M-War, Gilchrist, just to name a few of them, have built their techniques around longer form cricket. So they built their techniques about uh, around being robust for the moving ball, whether it be through movement with swing or with spin, and they became incredible dominant test players, first-class players, and because they had the foundation to their technique, they adapted and adapted exceptionally well to 50-over cricket. Uh, some of them in retirement, played IPL and dominated in the early years of IPL. Hayden did that. Ponting uh, had a had a run at that. Um, Gilchrist. Gilchrist dominated IPL for a number of years. Mark Waugh didn't have the opportunity. S. Waugh didn't have the opportunity. 
And Damien Martin, I don't think, played IPL either because I think he featured in the ICL, which was just prior to the IPL, and the players that did sort of dip their toe in the water there were not looked at. But, you know, the the main point, and this is what I talk to the modern-day player about, is that it's so important to get the foundation of your technique right. Yes, it's important to be able to be an adaptable player and play 360, but what's going to make you a a better player long-term is having a strong foundation to your game first and then work on the 360. And and the, the best example, I think, in the modern era of that and is Mike Hussey. Now, Hussey, when he first played in the first eight years of his first-class career, you wouldn't ever have thought that he'd be a dominant 50-over or 20-over player. But because he had developed in nearly an obsessive way a technique that was watertight for test cricket and first-class cricket, he was managed. He managed to just bolt on all the necessary things to become an effective and finally become a dominant white ball cricketer in 50 over and 20 over. I think. I mean, this is going off point slightly. I just my one my one thought with regards to that moving forward is that as the T20 game changes dramatically, and the likes of Russell and Gale, who are you know power hitters, so sort of almost a different breed of batsmen to the, to the types we're talking about there with Hussey. I think that it, there will be some players that necessitates almost a T20-specific technique, um, and, and that might make it harder to sort of bridge that gap you talk about, Moods, from the Red Bull Foundation into the White Bull game. Yeah. Um, but um, just, just to go back to the, um, to the debate at hand today, one question I've got for you two um, would be, um, obviously, when we're trying to talk about who the greatest side is, What's very important is the teams that they played against um, in that era and how strong were those teams. Um, and I've looked at the numbers, but it'll be very interesting to hear what you guys think around this. Um, looking at if you exclude matches against the West Indies in the 1980s and then in the 2000s, if we exclude matches against Australia. So when the other sides are playing against one another, um, we can see a little bit of a pattern emerge. And that's that in the 80s, we had um, Australia, England, India, New Zealand and Pakistan all being pretty competitive against one another. Pakistan with a standout side. Um, and the only side who were maybe could be considered weak in that period were Sri Lanka. Now, Sri Lanka and the West Indies did not play a single test match against one another in the period in question. Um, and then when you move to the Australian era, um, you've got uh, three teams who stand out as being weak. Um, and that's Bangladesh, Zimbabwe, and then to a slightly lesser degree, the West Indies. Now, I think um, you could probably quite fairly say that Australia were able to bully those teams. They played 22 test matches against those guys in that period. That's 22 of their 93 matches they played against sides who I think they would have gone into the test match almost certain that they were going to win it. Um, the other teams, obviously, in that period, England, India, New Zealand, Pakistan, South Africa and Sri Lanka were, again, pretty competitive. So I asked you guys... Um, which era, I suppose, was stronger from the other team's perspective? Um, and how does that fit into the broader debate? That's a good one. That's another good one. Um, I would obviously say that Bangladesh were very weak when they entered international cricket. Um, even at home, they weren't the same team at home that they are now. So I think people have to be aware of that. 
Zimbabwe had their moments, but you wouldn't say that they were one of the top five teams in world cricket during their time. They had a really nice time with, with the Flowers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I would think the West Indies had more on a straight line, more high quality teams to, to play against. But that shouldn't take away from the dominance that Australia were able. It may have affected individual numbers slightly, but it shouldn't take away from the dominance and the greatness of the Australian team. The other thing I'd look at before Tom chimes in on this, can we think, folks, listeners out there in Podland, of the type of fast bowling, the type of spin bowling that the West Indies would have had to come up against from 81 to 89? Who were the fast bowlers? Who were the opposition? Imran Khan, as you said, Freddie, led a very, very good Pakistan team against the West Indies. And we always felt that Pakistan at that time were the one team in the world game that gave us the most trouble because they played similar to us. Very aggressive cricket. They had good fast bowling with Wazim Akram, Imran Khan, to name two at a time. Wakar came around a little bit later, I think. Um, their batsmen were very stylish, even though if they didn't always travel as well. They also had a spinner, did they not, in Kadir? In Kadir, correct. So when you transport that to 1999 to 2007, there were also some good fast bowlers, whether they were of the same quality, the Shane Bond coming through at that point in time, a number of other fast bowlers in the opposition rank. So it's a very, very difficult one for me to answer. Yeah, I don't ask me to answer it either, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> Fish, I'm just glad that you've spoken that long for that period of time because it's given me a chance, which is which it hasn't been long enough, to try to come up with an answer to it. But it, it, it's just so, so difficult. And, and you know, did Australia play against weaker sides? Yeah, look, there's no doubt there's a couple of sides that were you know, sides that were a walk in the park, so to speak. Um, but I think the majority of the games they played during that time were all against very, very competitive sides. Uh, and it, you also get that situation where it's the tall poppy syndrome, isn't it? Where, you know, because you are the, 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 the top side, everyone wants to knock you off your perch. And I'm sure the West Indies had that same threat with teams that would play against the other things. I mean, you think of the great all-rounders of the time as well, and just being nostalgic, um, you go back to the heyday of Imran Khan, you go back to the heyday of Javid Miandad, who would have been in his peak at the peak of his powers through that early part of the 80s, uh, Dilip Vensaka from India, um, Ian Botham would have played along with Joel Garner at Somerset and would have come up against the West Indies and with David Gower, uh, a number of, of really quality players uh, coming through that era. And, and we'll get our listeners matching and shifting around names from that 99-2007 era. But I think both eras have so much to salivate about if, yeah. if we start deciding who fits in to a quality team on the back end of those two eras. Just, just, just to, Bish, to answer a question you mentioned in terms of the bowlers from each era, 
Um, just the, the sort of standouts from from the West Indies era and then from the Australian era. These are the top wicket takers in the 80s and then in the thousands. You had uh, Mount Marshall, obviously, who was playing for the West Indies. But then you had Hadley, Kapil Dev, um, Ian Botham, Imran Khan, Abdul Qadir, uh, Lawson, Garner, Holding. So a couple of the West Indians there. Uh, Willis, Walsh, um, Lilly. Uh, and then if we move into the, the modern era, uh, the bowlers that played during the Australian period, Murali. Uh, Warren, Kumble, so three spinners there at the top, uh, McGrath, Antini and Pollock. I think it's probably worth saying um, we spoke about Pakistan being West Indies' biggest rivals uh, in the 80s. I think South Africa probably stand out as Australia's. I mean, India mm-hmm. and South Africa and, and, and Moods, you mentioned how other teams sort of get up for playing against that top team. Both India and South Africa um, really seem to up their game, I think, when they when they came up against the Aussies. Um, during that period, we had some great series, obviously the famous 2001 India-Australia series. Um, and then actually just outside that era, after 2007, we had a great series between India and Australia in 07, 08, I think. Um, they, they always seem to up their game against them. So no, I'm not I'm not sort of wanting to downplay the quality of, of um, the rival sides to Australia in that period. I just think the one thing, and Bish, you made the good point, I think when there are weak teams around, like there were, it might influence those individual numbers a little bit. Um, you know, the likes of Ponting, again, obviously an all-time great player, but an average of 65, he probably did fill his boots at times against some weaker opposition. And that probably wasn't quite the case or couldn't be the case for some of the West Indies players that we spoke about. Um, and, and again, just one thing too, as well, to, to think about and, and post to you two, um, winning away from home and being adaptable on the road is obviously hugely important. That Australian team famously won in India um, during during that era, um, which I think a lot of those players rank as their greatest achievement. How important is that sort of um, when you're considering who is the greatest, the ability to go away and win? And maybe that's when it comes back to the Warren and McGill factor, particularly in Asia. How important is that? Uh, I'll say it was tremendously important. Um, I don't believe, I don't, my personal belief is you've got to be able to prove yourself winning away from your familiar conditions in order to be considered a number one team in the world. That is a non-negotiable for me. And back then, I know when I played at the start uh, of my career, and I know it was the same for those guys that played before me even more, they were the great bowlers. Um, There was never a thought of going to the subcontinent and losing. That thought never entered our mind. When we went to Australia, it wasn't going to Australia and not winning. Everywhere that we went in the early part of my career, and I know for the Holdings and the Lloyds and the the Richards and the guys before me, they thought about winning. So you've got to be able to win on the road. And those guys won on the road without having a very good spinner in their lineup. That was part of the aura that Tom Moody talked about. So that's a non-negotiable for me, winning away from home. Yeah, I think the other thing to, to, to point out, and you may have some stats, not maybe on a hand, Freddie, but is I think historically over the last decade or more, um, it's been increasingly harder and harder to win away from home, where back in the generation that you're referring to, uh, Bish, the 70s, the 80s, it, it was never a thought, you know, travelling away from home it wasn't a case of one of the challenges we've got is trying to break their fortress it was never that it was just a case of you know we've got to adapt to being on the road it was never seen as a 
a, a challenge like it is now, like it's a daunting challenge to be able to, to, to win away from home for whatever those reasons are. Right. So as, as we close off now, Tom, I, I think you had made a suggestion about maybe, was it putting together a, a generic team? Is, is that the term? Uh, I'll leave that for you to finish off this match. <laughs> oh, that's a nice. To lead it off, to lead it off. Well, I, I put it this way: at number at number one, I'm putting Hayden. He averaged 55. The big Queenslander, left-hander, averaged 55 during that era. So I've got him batting at number one. I'm gonna go to join him. I'm gonna go for Gordon Greenwich. Um, during that time, I'm with. Just, just to be clear to our listeners, we're not talking about where players finished eventually in their career. We're talking about their, their numbers during that period. Uh, with Gordon Greenwich averaging, what, 47, uh, considering all the other intangibles, I'm going to have him in there. Uh, Freddie, I'm, I'm going to throw number three at you just from a statistical point of view with the hardest job in yeah, I mean, we can't look beyond Ponting, can we? I don't think at three, um, with an average of 65. Um, he slots in there. I mean, we're probably going to try and get Richards in this team too. So we're we having Richards and Ponting at three and four. Or Yep, that makes sense to me. I mean, if you look at, if you're talking numbers, what did Clive Lloyd, Freddie, quick glance at your template, what did Clive Lloyd average during? Because if Ponting averaged 60 during his period, uh, 65 during that period. 65 with helmets, with the way pitches um, maybe have evolved to a certain extent compared to 81 to 89. Um, Clive Lloyd was tremendous, I would think, during his period as well. And Freddie, you're, you're yeah, aging, you're getting very much Clive slower. Lloyd had 662 in that period. <laughs> you, you think about that. And he is not often mentioned enough by some people for his contribution with the bat. He was a, a destructive player of spin bowling. Uh, when he went to the subcontinent, he would take on the fast bowling with great aplomb. He was a big fellow. So there'll be some debate if you put point, Ponting at that number three position and you want to fit Richards in. So you say, we are saying that Pont Richards has to go maybe four, then coming down to that number five, we've we got getting Lloyd there. We've got Clive Lloyd. We get to Clive in there. Yeah. At seven, I think there's no debate that we have Gilchrist, so we need a number. There's some one more batsman to, to round off the, to the top six. Um, who are we going for there? Um, I mean, you've got the Wars, Hussey, Martin as Australians um, who are competing for that spot. I'm going for Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh in that period, um, 3,000 runs, an average of 53. Um, yeah. Pretty outstanding. So <laughs> we'll slot him in at six then. And Gilchrist at seven, no no disagreements with that? No, yeah. no, no, I can't disagree with that. Gilchrist, seven. And then uh, Warren, Warren has Shane yeah. Warren. Malcolm Marshall. Marshall, definitely. And, and then McGrath. I guess... Yeah, Definitely. which of the other three? Yeah, if, 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 if an Aussie quick gets in, it's got to be McGrath. Does McGrath yeah, get in ahead of the West Indian options? Well, I... I sorry, I mean, I've you could have one, you McGrath and one other West Indian, of course. 
Well, would that be Joel? Would it be Ghana? Love to hear what our viewers think about who would get in there. Well, I, I, I think McGrath, personally, during that period, he took 325 wickets at an average of 20. Uh-huh. Um, and and I think uh, Garner, uh, during that same period, in his uh, period of domination, he took 157 wickets at 20, just, just a tick under 22, 21.98. So I'm going McGrath. Right. And that leaves so one still, don't argue with me. We still need one more. And that's, that's so got one Marshall, more. Yeah. We've got Marshall, McGrath, Warren. We need one more fast bowler. And Holding is an option. Garner is an option. And then I suppose you've got Lee and Gillespie. Or do you bring back one of the West... Another one of the West... Uh, I think, well, statistically, I think holding stands out. Average of 22 in the period in question. Um, yeah. I think for me, and then Brett Lee, just as a way of comparison. Yeah, so Lee in that period, in fact, averaged 30. Um, right. Yeah. So I oh, think, it's got to be holding. Yeah, I think holding's our man. So just to go through then, that, that our, our team there was um, Hayden and Greenwich to open, was it? Yeah. Um, yep. Ponting, Richards, Lloyd, War, Gilchrist. And then the bowling attack of Warren, Marshall, McGrath, and Holding. Um, not not a bad side. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck playing that suggested. Who's the captain? Just... Oh, Clive Lloyd. Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd or War? Who had the best Ooh, captaincy one. record? Good one, good one. Because I mean, both of their captaincy, both the, as captains as well, they were you know both hugely significant figures on those teams, weren't they? Yeah. Um, you know, Lloyd from a sort of figurehead leadership perspective, but War as well in the way that the sort of brand of cricket that he encouraged amongst the Australians, particularly around sort of aggressive batting, um, you know, w- w- was was very significant. So, I reckon they just share it, Freddie. Just have a game, <laughs> have a game each. Just that, share it around. As head coach of this side, be... you don't want to be telling one of them that their advice, do you? Or just just <laughs> do do paper scissor rock. <laughs> thank you very much to Freddie. Thank you very much to Tom. And thank you very much for our listeners to taking the time. We welcome your comments um, and your opinions and the captaincy of Steve Waugh and Clive Lloyd. Who should lead this team? Are you happy with Holding coming in instead of Joel Garner at the back end? Are you happy with Richards batting at four? Are you happy to hear Freddie to remind us where we can listen to this podcast? Yep, iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, um, uh, you know, you've got this far, you've already been listening, please do leave a review um, and, and a rating, um, that would be great, get us up the charts, uh, thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>